morning, everybody. Welcome back after a snowy week. Nice to get a little break here. Uh, today we're going to work on our series again on transformation. And uh, then we're going to celebrate communion together. So uh, let's get started. And if you're listening uh, over the, the internet, then you might want to uh, get some juice and uh, some bread or uh, whatever you want to use so that you can share in communion with us. So, transformation. We have looked for a couple of weeks at those stories that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15, where he uh, addresses in particular that group of religious elite called the Pharisees, who objected to his associating with people that they considered uh, on the margins, uh, unclean, not to be uh, treated with respect or love or whatever. So he told those stories, and we've been looking uh, the last couple times at that longest story that Jesus told, anywhere in the Gospels, the story of the two sons. Uh, we often call it the story of the prodigal son. And last uh, time we were together, we looked specifically at the uh, younger son and thought about uh, what was involved in his decision having uh, left home, gone to a far country, now he decides that he's going to return home again, home to where he belongs, home to where he's loved and protected and accepted and safe and all those things that the idea of home suggests. To begin that journey, though, he has to, as our Lord says, come to himself. And among other things, we said that that means uh, this young man needs to begin to see things as they really are, not as uh, he may have wished them to be or thought that they were. And uh, that's true of all of us if we're going to be engaged in the process of transformation. Uh, we need to begin to see things as they are, not as we wish they were or as we hope they are. But having seen that, then, he determines to go home. And, uh, and as he does that, he has in mind a bargain that he's going to work with his dad. Uh, the bargain is that he will return and take the place of a hired servant. And maybe in that, then, earn some money, not only to support himself, but also to begin to pay back the, uh, the debt of... Uh, what he's wasted of the inheritance. So he, he goes back and he gets home and, uh, and what Jesus then focuses on is the astounding welcome that he receives from his father, which was beyond all his expectation, beyond all his bargaining. And, and so that leads us to uh, thesis number three, which... We didn't actually put up the last time, but when we had our sermon follow-up class, some people started talking about that. They thought there was a third thesis there, 
So I've tried to capture that discussion for you. <clears throat> I think thesis number three is something like this, that the purposes of God for me are always better than anything I would think to negotiate for myself. See, that's, that's what you see in the return of the prodigal. He has got a deal worked out that he's going to propose to his father, but he's cut off in the midst of his statement of repentance. Before he even gets to verbalize that, the father already knows what he wants to do. He's going to reinstate the son to full benefits, you might say. Uh, and this is what we find with God, that, that his ways are better than anything we would work out for ourselves. All right, so that's the first son. Now, <clears throat> the second son is where we want to focus this morning. And I'm going to call this, this uh, time of reflection religion without God. Because that's really what the second son is about. The second son, of course, is is representative of what Jesus sees in the Pharisees, the group that opposed him. Remember, these three, three stories he tells are all directed toward the Pharisees. The people who are not Pharisees, the down and outers, they can listen in. right? But it's not really directed at them. It's directed at this group that is objecting to uh, the way Jesus is behaving. They are a religious group. They're the religious elite. But uh, the problem is their religion is one without God. So let's read, the, let's read the entire story again so we have it before us. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So let's talk about the second lost son. Because both of these sons are lost, right? That's the point of the story. One is lost far away, the other is lost near at hand. The older son, the second lost son, what should we say about him? Well, he is dutiful, but he's distant. Dutiful but distant. The the artist captures it somewhat here in the picture, right? I take it that's the, the older son on the right. He's looking on. He certainly doesn't seem to be happy with what he sees. And he's not he's not involved in the center of the picture. The center of the picture is is what's going on between the father and the prodigal, the the younger son. Dutiful, but distant. And what we see in the story is that, in fact, the older son is like the younger son in a certain fundamental respect. And that is that what he wants from the father is presence, not presence. He wants what the father can give, but the father himself, he's not all that interested in. That's the problem with the younger son as well, right? Give me my inheritance and let me get out of town as quickly as I can. Well, the older son stays nearby, but the attitude is much the same. All these years I've slaved for you, and you never gave me a fattened calf. You never celebrated what I did. Neither of these sons is really engaged with the father. Neither of them really understands the heart of the father. And of course, as we've already said, this story is directed 
to the Pharisees. Here's the artist's conception of that scene. Jesus surrounded by people who are listening to his words, who are sitting at his feet. Remember the end of the previous chapter, Jesus says, the one who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's talking about discipleship. He's inviting people to come and follow him in the life of the kingdom. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And it's these marginalized people, the sinners, that category of of the unclean, the people who are low on the shame honor scale. They're the ones who want to hear. But then there's the group of observers, the monitors, the critiquers. And they're represented by that group that stands watching. They're distant, they're dutiful, they're religiously observant in the way that the sinners aren't, but they're distant. They're not happy about the welcome that Jesus gives to the marginalized people. Just as the older son is not happy with the father's response to the prodigal. The Pharisees represent the second lost son, or I guess we ought to say the second lost son represents the Pharisees. And the second son is lost. We shouldn't miss that, right? But it's a different kind of lostness. What do we, what do we say about it? How shall we describe the problem of the older son. I think, it's, I think it's very important that we get this. <clears throat> and, and the best that I can come up with is to describe it this way. It is a cold-hearted obedience. It's real obedience. And in fact, if you, if you read the debates back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees, it is a real obedience. It's meticulous. The Pharisees as a group have their roots back a couple hundred years before, we think. And and they were a group that was marked by this deep concern to apply the Old Testament scriptures in their lives. To be faithful in a cultural situation where lots of people were being unfaithful. I mean, that's all commendable, right? So there's a great concern for obedience, genuine obedience, but it's a cold-hearted obedience. That's what it has become by the time Jesus is on the scene. And what's involved with that? Well, let's... Let's try and pull out a, a few things. I think, uh, I think one thing that tends to go along with this is fear. Right? It's, it's a fear that we won't get it right. 
Fear that we might make a mistake. Fear that other people are going to make mistakes. <laughs> but there's a lot of fear involved with this kind of lostness. Now remember, these, these people Jesus is talking to are religious people. They're, they're the kind of people that get up early on a cold February morning when lots of other people just roll over and stay in bed. And, and they go out and they scrape the ice off their cars and they come to church. Imagine that. that. That's the Pharisees. And yes, it, it can be us. Because, because churches are places where you find people that have gotten into this mode of relating to God. And there's, there's often a lot of fear that is there. There's often a lot of pride, and we certainly see that with the Pharisees. Remember that shame-honor scale. The Pharisees see themselves, as do many of the people in that culture, as high on the scale of honor. And with that then goes the attitude of pride. I am one of the people. I've worked hard to get here, and, and I deserve the recognition that I have. So pride easily goes along with a cold-hearted obedience. And then, of course, there's the bargain. Now, you remember that the younger son thinks he's going to work a bargain with God. I'll come back, I'll be the hired servant, and you can pay me a little bit, and maybe I can make some restitution it's a, it's a low-level bargain because, because he, he really knows he's blown it, right? So he's not making any claims to sonship. Uh, he's just going to be a servant. But there's, there's a bargain also that the older son thinks he has made. He thinks he's made it. And he's upset because it doesn't seem to be working. Tim Keller in The Prodigal God says this, Elder brothers believe that if they live a good life, they should get a good life. That God owes them a smooth road if they try very hard to live up to standards. Well, that's a bargain too, isn't it? You get what you put in. There are many elder brothers, there are many people in our churches, friends, and I dare say there's some in our church who are trying to work this kind of a deal with God, or they think they've got the deal until life starts to fall apart. 
And the problem with life is it normally does fall apart in various places, in various ways. And then, if you've been raised on this gospel, you're in trouble. Then it really feels even more than just the problems you're facing. Even more than that, it feels like everything is up for grabs. Everything is falling apart, including your relationship with God. And unfortunately, there are all too many churches where this kind of bargain is either explicitly taught or implicitly assumed to be the case. So many Christians end up in the elder brother trap. Well, so that's the bargain. And, and then I guess the uh, last thing I want to mention here under this cold obedience is the joylessness of it. My goodness. <laughs> the younger son comes home and they throw a party and the older son won't even go in. I mean, talk about being distant, right? He will not go in in spite of all the joy. The servants in the household, they're having fun. This is great. The younger sons come home and everybody's at the party except the older brother cannot come in. There is a joylessness in the way he operates. And yes, there's a lot of joyless Christianity. And part of that comes back to our functioning too much in the framework of the second lost son. So there's cold obedience, that's part of the lostness. And then the other thing that you see with this is resentment and anger. Right? The, the older son's not just put off. He doesn't just feel distance from his father. He is out and out resentful, not just toward his brother, but toward his father as well. And that comes out. Yeah. You never gave me a fattened calf. This son of yours, he doesn't say my brother, he says this son of yours has come home, he's wasted all this stuff, and you welcome him. Resentment and anger. <clears throat> Henry Nallen has some great reflections on this in his Return of the Prodigal Son. He says, outwardly, the elder son was faultless. But when confronted by his father's joy at the return of his younger brother, a dark power erupts in him and boils to the surface. Suddenly, there becomes glaringly visible a resentful, proud, unkind, selfish person, one that had remained deeply hidden, because you see, obedience can hide an awful lot of stuff. That, that's the problem we have as Christians together. We, we do a lot of hiding of what's really going on inside, and we hide it under external obedience. 
even though this person had been growing stronger and more powerful over the years. And then, then he broadens it and, and applies it to us. There is so much judgment, condemnation, and prejudice among the saints. There is so much frozen anger among the people who are so concerned about avoiding sin. That's well said, friends. And and I think you can see, if you look at the church in America today, you look at what we call the culture wars, which includes the political wars. And what do we see about Christians? What do other people see about Christians? They see that an awful lot of the time we are angry, bitter people. We are tracking with the elder son perfectly. So much frozen anger. Yeah, not, there is frozen anger. And there's a lot of hot, boiling anger, too. And it's, it's because we've gotten lost along the way, right? We're supposed to be headed home to the Father's house. And we've gotten sidetracked. Which leads me to thesis four, (laughs) that obedience without relationship is one of the ways we hide from God. See, here's, here's the problem with the Pharisees. Their obedience is, in one sense, a real obedience, but it's an obedience in which they are hiding from God because if they were really to come to the Father through Jesus, it would expose things deep inside them that they don't want exposed. If those things were to be exposed, and that's what Jesus is trying to do, he's he's opening up insight into who they are. They don't want to have any part of it. But as soon as he starts to do that, they can feel their status on the shame-honor scale beginning to slip. If Jesus looks into their hearts and they open their hearts to him, what happens? They end up with the rest of the sinners. They don't want that. And so they, and if we're not careful, we ourselves, by our obedience, we hide from God. And the message of this parable is, don't do that. Well, how do we, what is it that Jesus wants then? What are we supposed to do? What kind of action can we take? Well, let's go back to something we've talked about many times before. Let's talk about hearing Jesus sitting with those others who are at his feet with ears open, learning what it means to be a disciple, or as we've tended to say it, Living, learning in the school of the Messiah. 
What is it that we're to learn there? Well, we're to learn a third way. See, we've got two ways laid out for us in this story. The way of the younger son, which is the way of much of our culture, especially since about the 1960s, when I was a boy. It's the way of self-expression. It's the way of rejection of any specific morality. It's the way of make up your own rules. Seek pleasure. If it feels good, do it. So that's one way. Doesn't end up too well. No. So we've avoided that. Maybe. Well, then what about that second way? The way of obedience. Obedience that is formal, that is external, that looks good, that looks like we're avoiding the trap of the first son, but that's not a good place either. Probably you can get in touch with both of those ways, right? To some extent in your personality, although my guess is you fall more in one camp than the other. So I can get in touch with with being both the younger son and the older son, but I'm more of the older son. I mean, I wasn't... I wasn't a big problem for my parents. I don't think, probably, <laughs> probably should ask them about that. But I, I think, you know, fairly objective on that. I wasn't a big problem because I was, I was pretty conscientious and I towed the line pretty well. So my greater temptation, one that I fall into and still fall to sometimes, is to behave like that older son. But now, in the school of the Messiah, I'm starting to figure out that Jesus wants to teach me that there is a third way. What is the third way? It's the way of the true son. And see, in this story, we've got two sons who are described, but they are described by the third son. And he's the true son. And part of what it means to be the true son is to understand who your father is and what he's like and to really live with your father. That's that's the true son and that's who Jesus is. Remember these words in John chapter 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, the unique Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. So in the school of the Messiah, you see, what what happens is that we sit at the feet of Jesus, and we learn from him. And one of the most important things that he wants to teach us is who his father is and what it means to relate appropriately and properly to his father. And he's the one who knows because he is the one who, in a sense, has never left home. 
and has always lived in perfect joy and fellowship with the Father. The true Son, we learn from Him. And of course, what He wants to teach us then is that the goal of our lives is to seek the Father. None of the sons in the story are seeking the Father. They, they both in their own way want what the Father might give them, which is a kind of using of the relationship, right? And, and that would be a danger for us, that we could somehow use or try to use our relationship to get something that seemed good for us. God, I'll serve you if you take care of me, if you solve this problem, all that stuff. But beyond that, there's this idea of seeking the Father for who the Father is. That's what Jesus does, and that's what he wants us to do. For us to come home means that we're going to learn how to do that. Increasingly, that will mark our lives. <clears throat> so Victor Copan says this, A person's inner image of God is the single biggest factor impacting their physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. If our picture of God is not in alignment with the image that Jesus presented of his Father in heaven, the picture embodied in the parable of the prodigal son, then it will negatively impact our lives. The further our image diverges away from the image of God portrayed in Jesus, the more severe damage it will do in our lives. I just think that's spot on, don't you? Spot on. I need to be taught in the school of the Messiah a proper image of who God is. And many of us, for a variety of reasons, some of it's because, you know, our relationship with our own father wasn't good. Uh... And all of us had fathers who were sinful, even ones who, you know, were a blessing to us. They're still sinners. And, and to some extent then, there's this need to disentangle what we know about human fathership from the fathership of God. And the only one who can help us to do that is Jesus himself. And that's what he came to do. <laughs> Here we are. Hopefully we're all on our way home. We've started the journey. But some of us are still playing in our minds like the prodigal and even like the elder brother. We're, we're playing certain ideas about who the father is and our relationship to him and how we're going to work that relationship that are just not appropriate. They're getting in the way. And they're keeping us from, from making the journey well. So here's the invitation. 
to once again consciously step into the school of Messiah and say, Lord, teach me. Open my eyes to what you've seen and what you know from eternity about who our Father is. And help me to shed all that misconception and misunderstanding that keeps me from knowing and experiencing the love of God revealed in Jesus. This morning is a morning when we're going to celebrate communion together. So what I'd like you to do is is hold in your mind (coughs) as much as you can the things we've just been talking about and let's shift over to communion and let our previous talk be a background to that as we celebrate together. So... (coughs) If you picked up one of these uh, little combination communion cups, uh, there's a trick here that might be helpful. Uh, If you can't get that first cellophane free, you bend the tab down, and that breaks it loose. The first time we used these, I spent five minutes trying to get into the wafer. So now it's free, and yours is as well. So hold that in readiness. We've been thinking about the story of the two sons. Each of us can identify with one or both of these guys. Neither of them understood their father. And that means that Jesus is telling us that neither of them had really understood the good news about God's kingdom. But he came into the world to reveal the heart of the Father for both sons, for you and me, wherever we are in that spectrum, right? The Father's heart was a heart of overflowing love, a heart that welcomed each son back from the distant country of their lostness. As we come to communion this week, we want to keep that story in our minds. Let it be a template for our understanding as we receive the bread and cup. This simple ceremony teaches us to look back and to look ahead. We look back as we remember that last evening before the cross when Jesus gave thanks for bread and wine and passed it to his disciples. It was a symbol of his coming sacrifice, and it was a reminder that his death would mean life for them. Additionally, it was a sign of hospitality and deepest friendship. They and we are loved regardless of our past or our present. But the symbolism also looks ahead to the day when we reach home, the Father's house. 
There Jesus assures us we shall be welcome to a great feast in the company of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the people of God. We will sit at the table with Jesus and his Father. And there we will have joy as we comprehend that we are truly the beloved. That the aching desire at the center of our souls has been eternally satisfied. That we have come to our final home beyond all departures or separations. So, let us now take a few moments for silent reflection and thanksgiving. Think of the extraordinary selflessness of the man about to be tortured and crucified who says, this is my body, my life given for you, This is my sacrificial blood shed to end all sacrifices. Reflect on how this man values us, his friends, and then thank him for his friendship. And now think about how these symbols speak of the hospitality of our Father's home. Think of the Father who wants nothing more than to celebrate the return of his lost child. And think of the rejoicing in heaven over every step that you take on the homeward journey. And finally, give thanks with a grateful heart that you are profoundly loved in ways deeper than you will ever be able to comprehend. Gracious God, our Father, we give thanks this day for Jesus who came to us as a servant to reveal your love and to lead us home. We thank you for his perfect life, his holy sacrifice that cleansed us from our sins, and his mighty resurrection that brought life and immortality to light in our dark world. As we share this bread and wine, Draw our hearts to love and serve him more faithfully. Amen.
Now, please uh, open this little package and remove that little wafer. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it and said, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat together with thankful hearts. And now open the cup. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant, my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. I will not drink this cup again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. Let's drink together in anticipation of the day we feast together with him in the Father's house. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you for the good news of your love revealed in Jesus and for this time spent together. Please direct our steps this week as we continue the journey toward home. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ And the love of God his Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.